0: We'll be back to Luke chapter 9 again today, so if you have a Bible with you or you've got some sort of device that you can pull up, Bible-related activities, I would encourage you to find your way to Luke chapter 9. And as you do, I'm going to share with you a message that I have titled Amazing Greatness. Amazing Greatness. One day in 1985, a man named Carl Boberg was about to walk home from a Swedish church when suddenly a storm arose with thunderclouds and with lightning flashing across the sky. As Boberg and his friends rushed for a shelter, strong winds swept over the meadows where they were, and the thunder pealed in loud claps. Then came the fresh, cool showers of rain, and just as quickly as that storm had rushed into wreak havoc, it subsided, leaving this peaceful calm and a rainbow in its wake. Well, when he got home, Boberg opened the window and he saw the pristine bay before him where he lived. And he heard these church bells that were ringing off in the distance. And all of this together, just this awesome display of nature in addition to the 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 sweet sound of those bells inspired him to write a poem that he titled "O great god now the poem was a paraphrase of the eighth psalm and it was soon published and married together with a traditional swedish folk song which would make sense because boberg was there he was swedish so it was married with this sweet folk song and thereafter it was used as a hymn in the underground church in Sweden in the late 1800s. That's when Baptists and mission friends were persecuted in that land. The song spread to Germany where it was translated into German in 1907 and then it was translated into Russian in 1912. In 1931, the song reached the ears of a British missionary named Stuart Hine. While Hein was serving in this evangelistic mission to the area of Ukraine. He and his wife enjoyed that song, and so they learned that song, and they made that song a part of their evangelistic services as they were there working for God on mission from Britain in the land of Ukraine. Hein also rewrote some of the verses of that song, and he wrote new verses to that song in Russian as he felt led to do so. As they were on mission, it was typical for the Hines, this husband and wife missionary pair, to ask if there were any Christians in the villages where they visited. In one case, they found that uh, the hosts who were hosting them only knew of one Christian home in the village. This single couple was all the Christians they knew of in this area. And so when the Heinz arrived into the village and they approached the house of this one known Christian couple... They heard a strange and wonderful sound. The wife of this couple was inside reading from the Gospel of John about Christ's crucifixion to a house that was just filled with guests. And those guests were in the very act of repenting. You see, in Ukraine, the act of repenting is done out loud. It's a very vocal, verbal sort of thing. Individuals would cry out in repentance out loud. And the Hines, as they were gathered there outside of this home, did not want to disrupt what the Holy Spirit was doing within. And so they just stayed outside and they listened. And they heard people calling out to God, saying how unbelievable it was that Christ would die for their own sins. Praising him for his love and his mercy. And as these people cried out in repentance, Stuart Hine wrote down the phrases he heard them using and when it was all said and done he worked those verses those words of these people into a verse of a song that song that he and his wife so often used in those evangelistic services and that became for them the third verse of this song and here's how that third verse goes and when I think that God his son not sparing sent him to die I scarce can take it in That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. That song, as you might have guessed by now, was none other than a classic hymn known as what? How Great Thou Art. That's right. And that third verse is one of your pastor's favorite verses of any song that is out there. Just such a rich, beautiful truth to think that God, his Son, not sparing, sent him to die on our behalf and we see the greatness of God so richly on display throughout that hymn. He is great for his natural revelation, which, which causes us in awesome wonder to consider all the worlds his hands have made, seeing the stars, hearing the rolling thunder, His power throughout the universe displayed, as we hear in that first verse. And so that's, that's, a, that's a general, that's a, that's a natural revelation sort of thing. God, through his creative works, is on display in this hymn. But, but God is also great for his special revelation through which he has interceded in time through his written and his living word, which is Christ Jesus. And so when we contemplate these things, the creation of God, the salvation of God, we acknowledge how great our God is. But you can imagine how much more great he must have seen to to his first disciples who were there with him as he walked the earth, as he carried out the early part of his ministry there in Galilee, and and specifically in this kind of root city of Capernaum, where so often we've seen him to this point in our journey through Luke, carrying out awesome miracles by his own power. And the, the disciples had seen so many things. They had seen Jesus, for example, command in this natural revelation. He had commanded the disciples, to drop their nets off of the side of the boat, and it brought in this great catch of fish. And as they were there on the boat, out on the sea, this great storm comes upon them. such so that the disciples, professional fishermen, who've been on the sea for all their life, were used to the storms of this place, began to despair of their own lives. And Jesus gets up and speaks to the wind and to the waves and says, hush, and they are can you imagine the greatness of God that was on display through Jesus' command of the natural earth as his disciples were there among them but then on top of that there were these things that Jesus was doing in curing those who were sick in forgiving the sins of those who had sinned against God in driving out demons that the disciples were there seeing in very visible form the greatness of God on display in this spiritual realm as well and that came to a culmination in what we looked at last week in the event known as the transfiguration where jesus with his disciples has gone up on a mountain we don't know exactly where the bible doesn't tell us the name of that mountain but as they're there on that mountain suddenly the veil of his glory is lifted for just a moment in time and they see the brilliance of who he is and they hear The voice coming out of this cloud which descends upon them saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. I mean, can you imagine the greatness of God that was on display in that moment? Well, in today's passage, we're going to see yet another display of the greatness which causes people to be amazed at the greatness of God. That's that's ultimately the summary of what Luke draws out for us here in Luke chapter 9, verse 43. Is that the people were amazed. When, When what happens in this passage happens, the people are amazed at the greatness of God. But when we encounter what would have been a shocking statement that follows that from Jesus about what would be next in his ministry, as well as his own rebuke of his disciples in the verses that follow. We find that there's a little bit more about God's greatness that we need to learn about here from this passage. And so, as we find our way now to Luke chapter 9, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word and see greatness on display here, starting in verse 37. Hear the word of the Lord. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him, that is Jesus. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and only with difficulty. Does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves? I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. That is the son. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. And it was concealed from them. So that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid. To ask him. About this statement. An argument started among them. As to which of them might be. The greatest. But Jesus. Knowing what they were thinking. In their heart. Took a child. And stood him by his side. And he said to them. Whoever receives this child. In my name receives me. And whoever receives me. Receives him who sent me. For the one who. Who is least among all of you. This is the one who is great. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. You may be seated. And as we dig a little bit into this passage, I want to share with you three wonderful truths of the amazingly great God. Three wonderful truths of the amazingly great God that I think we see so richly on display here. We're going to spend a little bit more time on the first of these points just because that's where the biggest chunk of our text is but the first is this the amazingly great God has come down the amazingly great God has come down at the outset I simply want you to note that Jesus and his disciples came down from the mountain I I mean they were at this place where God's glory was so richly on display and Peter really wanted to stay there you remember he wanted to pitch tents for Moses and Elijah so they could all just hang around there and have a happy glorified time there on the mountain But Jesus leads his disciples not to do that. He leads them to come down off of the mountain. Why would he do that? Well, we're going to find that when they come to the foot of the mountain, there is a great need. When they come to the bottom of the mountain, when they come down to the valley, they find that there is one who is sick with demonic possession. When they come down the mountain, they realize that there is a great need for mankind. And it would have been easy for Jesus and his disciples to stay up on the mountaintop but there was work to do and jesus didn't come in this moment just to bring attention to himself just to receive glory in this moment jesus came as a missionary to save sick sinners and so he came down to carry out his work and you know sometimes for us life can really be filled with some mountaintop spiritual experiences And I hope you find yourself experiencing those sorts of experiences often. But beneath the mountain, there are people who are suffering and who are in need of a touch of grace. And we as a body, we as New Vision Fellowship, cannot live our life as Christ's followers exclusively worshiping on the mountaintop. Warren Wearsby wisely reminds us, we dare not stay on the glorious mountaintop when there are battles to fight in the valley below so let us my friends be known as a people who are found both on the mountaintop of worship and in the valley of ministry and jesus came down that's the truth of this passage it's also the truth of the incarnation when there was a great need on earth jesus responded by coming down to meet the need by taking on flesh to walk our side in his greatness concealed in humanity deity and humanity united in this one so that Jesus could carry out this mission of bearing our sorrows, of being acquainted with our griefs, of dying in our place to provide a ransom for our sins that we might be reconciled to God, that we might find peace with him. That's what his mission was all about. And on this day, when Jesus comes down off of the mountaintop, he encounters a crowd that is gathered around his disciples. Now included in that crowd, according to Mark's gospel, are the scribes. Those are the individuals who are kind of responsible for keeping up with the law, of making copies of of the manuscripts of the Hebrew Old Testament that were used as the Bible at that time. And the scribes are there. They're so often butting heads with Jesus. We've seen that already in Luke's gospel earlier on. And they're there, they're arguing with Jesus' nine disciples who did not go up on the mountaintop with him. You know, there were 12 disciples in all, and Peter and James and John went with him to the mountain. So there were nine who were left there at the bottom of the mountain. And as Jesus and his disciples come down, they find an argument between the crowds, and especially the scribes, and his disciples who had not gone up on the mountain. And as we've read in the... In our passage this morning, the topic of conversation between those individuals is a man and his only son who have come looking for healing from demon possession. Now, this boy was in terrible shape. Mark 9 gives a good bit more detail on this incident. So if you want to know more about his state, you can can take a look at Mark 9. Uh, But that's where we learn, for example, this boy has been battling with demon possession since childhood. Which is a good indicator that he's probably at least... Nearing teenage years, if not already a teenager at this point in his life. The demon that had possessed him throws him to the ground, causes him to foam at the mouth, creates these signs of epilepsy in him as he kind of rolls about, causes him to stiffen as though he's dead, and so on. I, I mean, this is a horrible sort of situation. And furthermore, this demon had made this boy mute, he was unable to speak. Except for there would be these moments when he would suddenly scream out under the influence of that spirit and go into one of these possessive sort of fits. And this father who encounters Jesus speaks of his son and he says, I beg you to look at my son. I mean, that's all somebody needed to do was look at this boy. And they could tell that there was something that was terribly wrong in his life. There was something that had gotten a hold of him. I mean, this son's condition was so bad that anyone who simply saw him would know that something was wrong with him. And the father has no question about what the problem is. This boy is possessed by a demon. That's what he tells Jesus. How did he know that? Well, perhaps it was the screech of this other voice that his son would sometime make as this spirit took control of him that tipped him off. We really aren't told And we talked a good bit about demons to this point in Luke's gospel. So I'm not going to repeat all the the lessons in demonology or the study of demons that we've talked about to this point. If that's something you're interested in knowing more about, I would encourage you to let me know. And I'll, I'll point you to some of the sermons on our website where we talked a little more about that topic. But I'll simply summarize that demons are real fallen angels who fell with Satan and who continue to roam about the earth. And they can possess an individual to influence that individual with Satan's limited power. So, I just want to give you a word of caution to be aware of demons. To to gain an understanding of them, but do not be obsessed with demons. Because those who become obsessed with demons find themselves in a trap. Don't go looking for the opportunities to, to seek out demonic influence. Don't become obsessed with demons. Don't be terrified of demons either. Now, if you're a Christian, you should know that greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. But there's some characteristics of demons that are apparent in this passage and in Mark's gospel related to this same possessed boy. So some of the things that we learned just kind of looking at what's happening with this boy would be, for example, demons can enter and exit individuals. Their presence can sometimes persist symptoms such as this boy's inability to speak, right? The demon kept him unable to speak. While sometimes there can be other characteristics of an individual's personality that a demon takes control of intermittently. For example, this boy was not always carrying out seizures. He was not always foaming at the mouth. And the text talks about how at times the spirit would seize him and cause him to do these things. Furthermore, we notice in this passage that Jesus can command demons not to come back. That's what he does for this boy when he heals him. We also learn that prayer and fasting, if we look into Mark's gospel and Matthew's account, can summon God's help to drive demons out. Demons can possess individuals for many years, even from their own childhood, we see in this account. They seek to destroy their host, In in this particular case, it's so clearly evident. As Mark's gospel describes how this demon will often throw this boy, has often throughout his life thrown him into the fire or into the water, trying to cause him to harm himself. And that's what demons try to do. They try to destroy their hosts. And furthermore, we see here that there are different types of demons. Jesus addresses this one demon as you deaf and mute spirit in Mark chapter 9. Then Jesus says this kind can come, can't come out by anything but prayer in Mark's gospel as well. And when the disciples come asking why they could not drive this demon out, that's his explanation to them. Basically, your prayerlessness has not driven this demon out. That would indicate that there are some types of demons That could be driven out without prayer. And the disciples were accustomed to that in their ministry. But here's one that would not allow that. But friends, the the summary here that's so clear here in this passage is that Jesus has power over demons. And still, this this boy, this poor boy had a rough go at it. Luke 9.39 reveals that this demon would cause great difficulty for the boy. When it intermittently left him, mauling him as it goes, as Luke describes. The word translated mauling in verse 39 is a Greek word which literally means to break into pieces or to break down. This demon was breaking this boy down. He had a tough life and so did his father. This man was living a tough life because of his only son. You can imagine what that would be like. I mean, this, this boy's erratic behavior. Nobody could predict what he was going to do. Surely drove other people away. Surely this family was living in isolation because everyone else had kind of grown weary of being around the kid. You couldn't predict what he was going to be doing. Everywhere he went, this son would do the things that would embarrass him. Everywhere he went, there would be questions. Mommy, what's wrong with that kid? And there were many fathers and mothers who dealt with this throughout history. There are many Fathers and mothers who deal with this same sort of thing today. Maybe you're one of them. Maybe the son that you once had so much hope for. Now chooses to pursue immorality. Or lives with dishonesty. Or thievery. Or maybe the daughter who was once the bright blessing of your family. Now lives a life that conveys she enjoys the pleasures of this world. More than God. For many parents in your shoes. Your heart may seem broken. The devil appears to triumph over them. And these parents are robbed of their choice jewels. Maybe that's you. If so, what can a mother or father do in a situation like that? Well, you can cry out just as this man did. You can go to Jesus in prayer and you can cry out to him for help with that which is certainly not beyond his control. You can seek the help of the one who is greater than your situation. Because our God is a great God. And he still hears and he still answers prayers. Now his timing may not always match our desires. In fact, he may prefer to prove our faith by keeping us waiting for years. But there's no situation beyond his power to intercede. And he does still listen, and he does still respond to prayer. So take your needs to him, just as this father with his demon-possessed son did. Now, Mark's gospel reveals that there's this exchange between Jesus and this father, where, where, where the father says, if you are willing, you can deal with this situation. Jesus says, if. He says all things are possible to him who believes and what does the man say he says i believe lord help my unbelief a lot of us find ourselves in the midst of that same struggle don't we i mean there are things that we encounter in life when we know that god is on his throne what we we trust that he's in charge of all things but then like, a, like an arrow shooting out of the dark night, something comes at us. A situation we didn't predict. A, a, a peril that we weren't expecting. And all of a sudden, our faith is challenged. All of a sudden, we find the dark crevices of what we had not planned. When things were going well on the mountaintop, we weren't prepared for what might come in the valley below. But Jesus was using this man as a lesson to his apostles. They needed to know that even imperfect faith, in him can accomplish something wonderful. And so desperately, this man pleaded for Jesus to give him whatever was lacking in his faith. And Jesus did that. When this man said, help my unbelief, Jesus helped him in his unbelief. And that's an okay prayer for us to ask. It's okay for us to confess that there are certain areas, God, where I just don't know that I have a full grasp on things. I don't know that I'm prepared to deal with with this difficulty lord help my unbelief in this situation that's a prayer that jesus clearly answers here in this passage all of us face the challenges of adversity in our lives from time to time and on occasion those adversities may weaken our faith you may be here today and you may be facing an adversity or a particular situation in your life and you found that your faith has been weakened through the trial. If your faith is weakened, don't shy away, because there is one who stands ready to take that weak faith and lead you into something greater. And this father was about to learn that very thing in the midst of this great need. He was about to learn that someone who had come had a power, had a greatness which was greater than his struggles. Now, I'm not sure this was quite a struggle for this man. I can't imagine the heartache and the grief he had experienced through these years. I can't imagine the friends he had lost who were afraid to be around his unpredictable son. The demon which inhabited his son was powerful, but now he was standing face to face with someone who was more powerful. And friend, no matter what difficulty or what enemy you may be staring down, you should know this, God is powerful greater. Even if you're facing death itself, you can rest in the knowledge that our mighty savior has gone to the cross and has gone through the cross to emerge victorious over sin and the grave. In whatever situation you are facing, you can lay hold of victory by faith. And if this father had not faced years of trials with his son, we can only guess that perhaps he would never have come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. While this problem was was surely a depleting and an immense struggle for him, God used this problem to deliver him from an even greater problem. The problem of his own sin and his own shame and his own guilt before God. And there's a word of encouragement for all of us here. Are you facing problems that are too great for you to bear? Then my friends, let those problems drive you to Christ. Because they are not too great for him to bear so let me remind you that he has won the ultimate victory let those problems then give you hope and strength and encouragement to press on through this time which now seems so long but will one day seem like a grain of sand in the great ocean of eternity because jesus is greater than that problem my friends There's a lot of difference between what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration on the day before what happens in this event and then what happens down in the valley of suffering here in this passage. Glory appeared on the mountain. Tragedy awaited in the valley. On the mountain, Jesus revealed his majesty. In the valley below, Satan seemed to be in control. And those who had been left in the valley had a particular issue that Jesus calls them out on here in this passage. It was their unbelief. The man mentions that he brought his son to Jesus' disciples and he begged those disciples to drive the demon out, but they were unable to do that. And Jesus replies with these words in verse 41. He says, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Who is unbelieving here? Who is this generation that Jesus is speaking of? Well, certainly, there's an unbelieving element in this man who says, I believe, help my unbelief, right? But also the disciples, who through prayerlessness were unable to drive this demon out, show that there's a level of unbelief in themselves. They would not go to God in prayer to seek his help with this situation. Then there are the scribes who are there discussing With the disciples, why they couldn't drive the demons out, waving their long fingers in their faces and saying, there's nothing to what you believe. There was faithlessness all around. The crowd was faithless. As Jesus heals this individual, we find in Mark's gospel that the people thought that he was dead. They didn't trust his ability to heal. They were there to watch it. But when this demon thrust him to the ground and left him looking as though he was dead, the crowd all thought he was dead. Till Jesus took his hand and raised him up. There's faithfulness, faithlessness all around in this situation. In spite of the fact that Jesus has been showing his greatness everywhere through great miracles. He's been doing these things all around this area where they are now gathered. But the key issue for the disciples was this matter of prayer. Matthew and Mark both record that the disciples later go to Jesus. And they ask him why, he can't, why they cannot drive this demon out. And Jesus said, this kind can only come out through much prayer, which tells us something, right? The disciples weren't engaged in much prayer. They were trying to go in their own strength rather than leaning on the greatness of God. These disciples were used to being with God in the flesh, but when he went away, when he went up on the mountain, they still needed communion with God. They had been granted great spiritual gifts. And many of you have been granted great spiritual gifts as well. But no matter what gifts we may have received, the exercise of those gifts is not automatic. And we must not allow our spiritual disciplines like prayer and listening to God's word to wane simply because we don't sense his immediate presence at any given time. Once these disciples discern the extraordinary strength that that this demon that had taken up, in this, taken up residence in this boy had. They should have sought God's help by praying to him in faith. If they had done so with even the tiniest faith, even the faith of a mustard seed, as Matthew's account in this healing reveals, they could have seen God persevering through this extraordinary situation. God's word had been spoken. His promise had been given. His will had been made known. And the disciples, all they needed to do was to ask and to believe. Inquiring of God for the power. But for whatever reason, they were unwilling. But before we get too hard on the disciples here, let's evaluate ourselves. If Jesus were to roll out this new metric with you, if Jesus were to apply the presence of prayer in your life as the measure of Of faith in your life. How would you score? How would you read on that chart? How is your prayer life? Jesus had some harsh words for what he referred to as an unbelieving and a perverted generation. He had given his, his disciples, he'd given his apostles, these 12 that he'd selected, authority over Satan back in Luke chapter 9, verse 1. Yet they were too weak to cast this demon out. He he had allowed them to see his compassion for the people there on the mountainside as he fed the multitudes, the 5,000 men with these fish and loaves as we've read about in Luke's gospel. And yet the disciples seeing that compassion are still contemplating in their hearts about which one of them is the greatest. They've missed the element of love. Perhaps we can understand Jesus' frustration with their lack of faith in light of all that he had done, all that he had taught them, and yet they were still trying to go it all alone. They were still trying to go it without prayer. And Jesus asked a question that many a parent has probably asked at some point. How long shall I put up with you? Any of you ever asked that question? It's okay if your kids are around. How long shall I put up with you? As many a parent knows, there is a clear answer to that, right? I will put up with you forever. I will never get up on you. Yes, there may be times when you frustrate me. Yes, there may be times when you you show yourself to be a real mess. But I will put up with you to the end of time because you are God's gift to me. And so Jesus did still put up with this group. And no matter how much his disciples may have failed, Jesus would not fail. And he still picks up. He still puts up with us as well. No matter how much we failed, if we lean on him, Jesus leads us through the failures into something greater. And Jesus dealt with this demon. This demon made some last-ditch efforts As he's coming to Jesus, this boy, the demon slams him to the ground. He throws him into convulsions. But then Jesus rebuked that demon. And that demon heard a voice which had a greater authority than his own. And that demon obeyed. But you know, that's the sort of activity we would expect of demons. When the devil knows that his number has been called, he inflicts all the damage he can with what little time he has left. Don't be surprised at the increasing level of evil in this world. Don't be surprised that the devil keeps some men and women on the verge of coming to Jesus because that's what Satan does. But my friends, I hope you're not letting the power of Satan or the lures of this world hold you back from getting to christ and finding all that he has to offer and for those who waited in the valley below all hope seemed lost but praise god the majestic one came down and that's the truth for you and me as well yeah this world shows so much wickedness around us yeah this world seems to be going in the tank Yet yeah, it feels sometimes like we are so much in the depths of the valley. But my friends, our Savior is coming again. And we have a steadfast hope that he who came down into the valley in this passage shall likewise return for his own, coming on the clouds to call those who are his own, to be with him forever, with a permanent dealing of the, the impacts of what Satan has wrought here on the earth below. And, and at the end of this episode, the summary of the crowds who are gathered around is given by Luke as they were all amazed at the greatness of God. So the one, one, the first wonderful truth about the amazingly great God is this. The amazingly great God has come down. Second is this. The amazingly great God has shown amazing grace. The marveling and the amazement of the crowds is not what Jesus is after. In fact, he knew that after a short time, those who were now crying out about his greatness would be crying out other words to say, crucify, crucify. He didn't come for short-lived praise and amazement. He came for something greater than that, which is what he tells his disciples here in verse 44. He says, let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Matthew and Mark, in their accounts of this very situation with Jesus and his disciples, mention that he told them for the second time about his crucifixion and his resurrection at this moment. And as he does, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. That's a phrase that Jesus uses 23 times in Luke's Gospel. This was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself as the Son of Man. It's a name that identified him with those he came to save. And that was the purpose of his forthcoming death. Jesus wasn't here just to gather up praise for himself. He was here to ransom a sin sick people and to restore them to his heavenly father. And this is the second passion announcement by Jesus in Luke's gospel. The first came earlier in chapter 9 when Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ And Jesus told his disciples not to tell anyone. Then he said in verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. When the disciples heard this, Luke records in verse 45 that they did not understand this statement. They had many of the same promises that we now cling to. The promises of Christ coming to restore for himself a people, a a coming to build an everlasting kingdom. They had promises that this Messiah would be coming to earth, that he would establish an earthly kingdom on a new heaven, a new earth that would never end. So it must have been very difficult for them to understand how this Messiah would first have to undergo death. And yet the disciples were afraid to ask the one who had called them out to follow him and to learn from him. That's the very essence of what it means to be a disciple to be a learner, to be one he was following. How could they not ask him about this thing that confused them? How could they not go to the one that they committed their lives to the teaching of when they didn't understand a teaching that he was giving them? And I can only guess that this was just another facet of the disciples' own arrogance. They didn't want to lead on. They didn't want anybody else to get the, the impression that they didn't understand. And so they stayed silent. And even after his resurrection, they were still here in this state of confusion. Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with a couple of the disciples in Luke 24, 25 said this. He said, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. That's, that's after the resurrection. They're still confused about this thing. And friends, I just want to tell you this. It's okay to ask questions about the things that you don't quite understand when it comes to your understanding of god don't let fear or shame keep you from comprehending the gospel don't let a shame of of thinking what is someone else going to get the impression of if i have this question about something that's so important because those are important questions that we all have and anyone who has truly come to christ has wrestled with these same things none of us is greater than anyone else We're just one beggar showing another beggar where to find some bread. And that's what the gospel provides us an opportunity to do. So don't let those questions keep you away. Don't let your confusion and your your concern about looking like someone who's less than understanding keep you from the hearty truths of the gospel. The second wonderful thing about the amazingly great God is this. The amazingly great God has shown amazing grace. The third is this. The amazingly great God Showing amazing grace negates our arrogance. The disciples, in spite of having seen time and time again the greatness of God on display through Christ, were trending toward arrogance. So much so that they began to argue with one another about which of them was the greatest in verse 46. This argument is shocking. I mean, a few of the disciples have just witnessed his transfiguration where God's greatness and his majesty in Christ had been so richly on display. Furthermore, they had all personally heard his statement that whoever would come after him must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Jesus. They'd all heard Jesus saying that thing. And friends, you should know this. No one with a cross strapped to his back argues about how great he is. Right, I mean, you don't go and say, look, I'm getting the greatest electric chair, the shiniest new model. I'm greater than everyone else who's ever been on death row. No, there there is no argument of greatness when the cross is on your shoulders. And here Jesus has just taught his disciples about his forthcoming personal suffering. But all they can think about is their own personal glory. These men would soon be the leaders of the church that Jesus was founding. If each of them was to establish himself as the greatest. They would be in competition rather than in cooperation with one another regarding God's mission. Because there can only be one who is the greatest. We're talking about a superlative word here. Which would only allow one to be the greatest. And looking down on others. And saying that you're greater than them is prideful. It is arrogant. And arrogance divides arrogance sees others as less important and when we as the church take the gospel when we we take on a hostile world we need to lock arms in unity with one another we need to support one another but arrogance does not unify arrogance divides relationships thrive when we lovingly sacrifice ourselves and serve others to defer to them and to give them a greater standing in our own eyes. Arrogance makes us indifferent toward others. Arrogance leaves us looking on others judgmentally. Condemning their actions. Arrogance breaks relationships apart. Arrogance breaks churches apart. What we need is humility. What is humility? Humility is simply a matter of being As aware of my weaknesses as I am of my strengths. Humility is simply being aware as aware of my weaknesses as I am of my strengths. That's what we're called to. When we're humble, we realize that all that we have is from God. We realize that none of us is more important than the other. Because God sees us all as valuable enough to send his son for us. And so we take on the responsibility of helping our brothers and sisters bear one another's load. And friends, it's impossible to win the argument that you are the greatest when you are standing in the shadow of the only one who has shown himself to be the greatest of all eternity. And yet that's what the disciples are striving to do here. Isaac Watts said it well when he wrote the following words of a well-known hymn. He said, When I survey the wondrous cross, On which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and pour contempt on all my pride. And so I say: Are you at odds with someone in your life? If so, I want to ask you. I want you to ask yourself a question: Am I angry because I'm grasping for greatness? Grasping for greatness offers us promises that it cannot keep. We believe that establishing ourselves higher than others will satisfy our souls. And so when someone steps into our turf, when someone thinks they're getting an edge on us in some way, we get angry sometimes, thinking you're violating my peace. You're violating an objective that's going to give me a satisfied soul. But in reality, in reality, this is what leads us into disunity, into disharmony, into jealousy into a lack of love. And there is a response that, that Christ calls for in us in light of the fact that he has come down for us, in the light of the fact that we have received his amazing grace. He calls for us to see value in every other human being. In the Judaism of Jesus' day, children under the age of 12 could not be taught the Torah. So if you were, you know, if you were like a religious guy who's really trying to learn about God, you wouldn't spend a lot of time hanging out with individuals who were under 12 years old because there was really no value in it. They weren't allowed to study the Torah. They just saw in Judaism, in Jesus' day, they saw spending time with individuals that young as a waste of time, at least men who were studying religion did. And we know what that experience is like. Have you ever been excluded from the important stuff that the big people are doing Right, I mean, they probably experienced that more when you were a child, and, you know, like the parents are doing things with their other adult friends, and, and there's just things that, you know, oh, well, the kids should stay in the other room, go in there, right, go go play over that way. But sometimes that happens in, like, the business realm, too, right? You know, the big people jump into the boardroom, and they're going to have the meeting, and uh, you, you, you little folks, you just stay out there, right? This, there's a safe place for you to go and do things for the little folks, But but what more important work could ever be done on earth than what Jesus was doing in his limited time in this earthly ministry? And yet Jesus makes time for a little boy to come to his side. And we actually read in the other gospel accounts that Jesus held this boy in his arms. And here the king commands the disciples and the king commands you to receive this one receiving this one Jesus says is a matter of receiving himself this is a lesson in greatness you want to be great Jesus says receive individuals like this in my name because that's the true measure of greatness and and as I read this I'm reminded of that father from earlier in our passage who had been giving his life to pulling his son out of the water and pulling his son out of the fire surely he thought that his life was meaningless There was no way he was going to climb the ladder of success when his eyes had to be constantly upon this problem child. And yet day after day after day, he continued to receive that child. And when his son's faults and his infestation became apparent, he could not reject his child to further his own interests. He kept pulling his son from the fire. He kept bringing him back from the brink of death. And when Jesus came near, that weary father took what little bit of faith he could muster and he took his boy to Jesus. What he found was that the life he thought was meaningless was actually right on target with the Savior's highest calling. His tattered and his weak faith was just the sort of faith that Jesus could use to show others what it's like to come to him with your weaknesses and to find his strength as an agent of the great God. And friend, you may be weary of caring for others, but you must know that if you are caring for others, then your work is a kingdom calling. Far from from carrying yourself into obscurity, you are establishing yourself as great in god's kingdom so don't give up the fight don't grow bitter at your plight there is a reward in store for you jesus summarizes in verse 48 by saying the one who is least among all of you this is the one who is great jesus isn't telling you that you should give up your positions of authority he isn't telling you to forsake your gifts and your talents He's simply calling you to humble yourself so that you can serve others. Those who are great in God's kingdom are not those who climb the ladder in t- to the top in pursuit of others who will give them honor. The great ones of this kingdom are the ones who recognize that all they have is from the grace of the greatest one. And so they find ways to lift others up, looking out for their interests and considering them as more important. themselves so friends instead of wasting your life seeking status for yourself give your attention to the needs of people who have no status people like children and get ready it might get messy there might be dirty stinky diapers there might be snotty noses and spoiled brats there might be disabilities and there might be demons Many of you who serve in children's ministry are among some of my greatest heroes because of your pursuit of this very thing. You love those snotty and stinky and spoiled brats. And you want them to know Jesus. And so you receive them in his name. And that's wonderful. Several of our folks are gone this morning To prepare lunch at a soup kitchen for those who have difficulty obtaining a meal on their own. There are others than children who have no status that Jesus calls us to love. And I commend them for their work in going and showing this sort of love. You may find others who have no status in the nursing home or in the hospital bed or in a prison cell or living under a bridge. When we serve others like these... As though we are serving Jesus, we are in fact serving Him and the Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus says in verse 48. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Do you want to know how great you are in God's eyes, Christian? Ask yourself, how much concern do I show for others? Your honest answer to that question will give you a good idea of your true greatness in the only eyes that truly matter. The only one who holds true greatness. So let us, my friends, pursue true greatness by humbling ourselves and reflecting the amazing grace we've found in our great God. Because that's what Jesus has done. He came to receive those who have no status. He came to receive the outcasts. And so if that's you, If you're here today and you feel like you've messed it all up, you feel like you've got nothing to offer, you feel like your your bank account is bankrupt when it comes to serving the Lord, why would he ever want to call me because I've got nothing to offer him? Why, Why would he want to call me when I've amounted to nothing significant in my life? Well, my friends, this passage reveals to us that those are the individuals that Jesus calls to himself. Those are the individuals that he calls those who are in his church to reach out to to extend his grace to to offer his loving kindness to and so, as we close here in these final moments, consider your own heart, consider your own journey. Are, are you keeping the Lord at bay because you feel like you are not worthy of him? Well, then welcome to the crowd, my friends, because none of us is worthy yet his grace has been richly. Extended to each and every one of us by the God who has come down. And so we rejoice in this truth. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for the good news that your greatness has been on display through Jesus Christ, the Lord, the greatest who ever lived. And in that greatness, Lord, you have shown that your greatness did not come to consume us. As Jesus came in his first coming, he came for the very purpose of redeeming us. A rescue plan, a mission plan, Lord. And so, Father, let us not come to this place and hear of his death and hear of his sacrifice and hear of the life that he offers and go away not understanding let us not come to this place as those who've given our lives to this truth and and hear the call that we are to follow christ and that we are to lift up those who are lowly that we are to make ourselves lowly so that we might be ministers of the one who has come down on our behalf but father in all these things let us fix our eyes on jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith who took on flesh himself it became obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. That he might show great grace and love. And let us fall into that grace. Let us be ambassadors of that grace. Father. Is our prayer in Jesus name. Amen.